it's like trying to pass yourself off as a surgeon in a hospital. You can get away with it for so long, but then all of a sudden you will make a mistake and you will get caught out. Theme Welcome to the podcast that celebrates the contribution of diverse people to British stand-up comedy past and present. I'm Ollie Double. And I'm Sophie Quirk. Who are we talking to today, Ollie? Well, this is a conversation with Ray Campbell. It was an interesting one for me because I've known Ray for a long time. We first knew each other back in the 80s, I think. Now, Ray talks in the interview about experiences of racism. And so there are a couple of references I should probably explain before we hear the interview. Uh, First of all, we talk at one point about the BNP, which stands for British National Party, a thankfully now defunct far-right organisation. On a happier note, uh, I also mentioned Sheila Hyde, who was a brilliant black British comedian working in the 80s and 90s. This interview took place over Zoom in June 2022. It was a really lovely chat. Over to Ray. My real name is Ray Campbell, but... Uh, my stage name is Buddy Hell, and I started performing, I guess it would have been December 1986. And that happened when, I think it was the third year on the course that I was doing, which is the BA Honours Creative Arts course at what was then called Newcastle Polytechnic, asked me to tell some jokes for the course Christmas party. I'd never performed stand-up before. I was relying really on my cultural capital, which in my case was the uh, American stand-ups that I'd seen and heard. So yeah, December 1986, and then a year later, I set up Cabaret Go-Go with a few other people. Have you been performing continuously since then? Not really, no. Uh, I was performing mainly from 1986 to 2000 uh, when I decided to let my career wither on the vine Uh, and then I returned to it in 2005 I think it was a friend talked me into it because I I was just going to leave stand-up behind because it really had disappointed me enormously I, I, I perform occasionally um, I still do that. I perform mostly mostly out of town and in Bath, <laughs> of all places. It's it's kind of, you know, every now and again, really, for mm. me. So, so you say you perform mainly in Bath. Where's that in relation to where you live now? You say out of town. I, I live in London. I live in West London. I live in Hammersmith, just behind the, the Hammersmith Apollo, where they do a lot of live comedy these days. Yeah. But I used to see loads of bands there back in the day. <laughs> Because I used to live in Bedfordshire <laughs> before I moved down this way. But um, yeah. Well, I, don't, I kind of don't want to pick up on this now because I know there's so much more positive stuff to talk about in terms of your performance career. But when you say stand up, mm. disappointed you enormously. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? What happened? The kind of material that I was doing was quite political towards the end of the 90s. There were very few political comedians left on the circuit that most of them had left. And every now and again, I'd see somebody who was doing uh, political material, somebody like uh, Alex Marion, I think, and um, Mark, uh, God, I can't remember his surname. But yeah, very, there were very few of us. And what what happened was I was getting less and less work 
So I'd phone up uh, promoters and they'd say, phone me back in a year's time. Other promoters who used to phone me up because I used to rely on last minute gigs, uh, they stopped phoning. And so I was forced into a position where I had no other choice but to take a day job in housing, <laughs> which was pretty difficult and it was hard to get used to it because mm -hmm. I had to get up early in the morning. I was so used to you know, rolling in at three and four in the morning and sleeping until one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and it was a real shock to the system. But yeah, there was that. But there were also a lot of lad comedians about as well. And that was really annoying me. Uh, many of them were doing um, material about gingers. You know, I come from a family of redheads, okay? <laughs> and, and that sort of stuff just doesn't fly in my family. But they're also mocking the Welsh, you know, because they couldn't get away with doing Irish jokes anymore. So they were making fun of the Welsh, and uh, that was really starting to annoy me. So, yeah, faced with those disappointments, I decided to turn my back on stand-up, only to be dragged back into it. Uh, I mean, it, it strikes me. I mean, I've, you know, obviously I remember stand-up in the 90s, um, and, and yeah, I, I didn't like the ginger jokes much either. But it also struck me that those kind of things were almost a proxy or a, a kind of methadone for actual racism. Yeah, because they couldn't they could no longer get away with saying, oh, you know, this Irishman on a building site or this Pakistani fella, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was very much a substitute for the racist material. It, it's very, very, very lazy. You know, the, the relying on stereotypes to to get laughs, I think. One of the things that this podcast is about, I mean, it's about diversity. And in some ways, it's that that cuts two ways. On the one hand, there's a social justice thing about, you know, like, like any other aspect of life, uh, stand up should offer opportunities to everybody, regardless of their identity. But also there's another aspect to it, which is to, to sort of celebrate the, the role of diverse people to the evolution of British stand-up. Yeah. So with that in mind, what do you think um, makes your work distinctive in terms of subject matter, material, performance style, etc.? Well, for a start, I don't perform black. I made a conscious decision not to perform black, or at least perform to a majority white audience's expectations of what a black person should perform like. Uh, in terms of politics, I always said that uh, I, my understanding of that word wasn't limited by political parties. It was the politics of everyday life. So I, I talked about race. I talked about consumerism. I talked about people like General Pinochet and, you know, my disgust for him. Uh, but I, it, I, I also used to do impressions of politicians as well. So it, I, I used to do impressions of um, John Major, for example, and Neil Kinnock and uh, Roy Hattersley. My material could at times be subversive, but towards the end, it, was, it, it, it developed a, quite an emotional angle, I thought, because I... I felt the pain of those people who suffered at the hands of the Pinochet regime. And I let the audience know about this. And throughout that period, I mean, I used to have people come up to me after, after the show and, and engage me in conversation. So I thought I was doing the right thing. 
Thank you. That's really interesting. And I just wanted to double click on something that you said there, which is that you didn't want to play into a white audience's expectations of a black comedian. So what would you say those expectations were and how how was that sort of pressure manifested if it was? Well, um, in those days, most of the black comedians on the circuit, and there weren't very many, let's put it that way, there were very few, came from uh, a Caribbean background. And so I, I thought that there were white audiences that, that expected me to play uh, as a Caribbean person and to talk about stereotypically black things. So, you know, it's kind of hard to sort of describe these things, I think. But I mean, even that is quite interesting, isn't it? That they expected you to be from a Jamaican background when that's not your background. No, not at all. And I, I actually had somebody come up to me, an audience member, and say, that's not your real accent. You're really, you're really Jamaican. I said, no, I'm not. Okay. Uh, I'm half American. I lived on American Air Force bases around Americans up until the age of 18. So this is my accent. That's my background. Um, I, I also had a fellow comedian say to me, and okay, let's put it this way. He's from a Pakistani background and he was doing this, this kind of routine about an imam. I think he was playing a character of some description from a, par- a Pakistani background. And he said to me, you, you should try, you know, doing something West Indian. I went, no, you know, that's not where I come from. And not only that, I, it, I, I, I would end up, making mistakes. You can't fake it. I mean, this is something that uh, Pierre Bourdieu talks about. You can't fake something like that because you will slip up. It, it's like trying to pass yourself off as a surgeon in a hospital. You can get away with it for so long, but then all of a sudden you will make a mistake and you will get caught out. So I, I refused to do that. But I also had promoters who they didn't like me doing politics. They wanted me to just stick with doing crowd-pleasing voices, you know, silly character voices, which I'm quite happy to do, but I, I wasn't going to let that rule my my performance. I also, I mean, just while we're on this theme, um, in, in 1990, you were on a report on The Late Show about the Black Comedy Club. Yeah. And I, I believe I'm right in saying that you were interviewed with Kevin Cisse, but yes. they didn't include that footage. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered two things, really. One is, do you remember what, what you were saying you know, in that interview? And, and secondly, why do you think it wasn't included? Well, first of all, to deal with the first part of your question there, we were asked by the interviewer whether it was important to be black first and then funny. And Kevin and I looked at each other and thought, well, what the hell is this woman talking about? But we didn't answer the questions as she wanted us to ask them, uh, answer them rather. I mean, I talked a little bit about my background and, and I insisted that it was important to be funny. And I could, I could use my, my background to be funny, um, but I wasn't going to play up to expectations. I don't think I use those exact words, but that's roughly how it went. And I think Kevin more or less said the same kind of thing, because I think Kevin is from a mixed background as well. And his dad's from Sierra, Sierra Leone, I think. So again, yeah. not, not a Caribbean background, but an African one in that case. 
Yes, yes. I mean, there were very few people from an African background on the circuit in those days. But yeah, I mean, that's what that's what happened. We didn't actually answer according to the expectations. I mean, I think I think both of you, both you and Kevin had very distinct comic voices, you know, and a very dis- distinct uh, perspective um, on, you know, comic perspective on the world. And, and I think that perhaps you didn't maybe they thought you didn't quite fit. Uh, yeah. what they expected but of course what we're interested in, in this podcast is precisely your individuality really yeah you, you know as an artist what do you bring to the table well yeah I mean I'm a product of my social and cultural capital so there's no way around it I mean you know I couldn't I, I couldn't be something that it wasn't and I, I always insisted that I had to be true you know there had to be some truth to what I did it wasn't about me pretending to be somebody else that I wasn't. I always thought the circuit would would appreciate these kinds of anomalies, you know, that it, it would uh, appreciate this kind of, I, I was almost going to say something situationist there, uh, detournement, <laughs> where something familiar becomes unfamiliar, <laughs> if, you, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I, I was kind of the embodiment of detournement yeah. in a way. And, and in the event, do you think that that has been a real advantage to you on the comedy circuit? To, because it, a lot of what you're talking about is, is not fitting expectations, not fitting that interviewer's expectations. Mm. Um, actually, I was really interested in your article on um, post-punk and alternative cabaret. Mm. You refer several times in that article at different stages of your career to not fitting with the expectation. Has yeah. that been like has that been a plus for your comedy career or? Well, personally, it's been a plus, I think. But I think in terms of my success or lack of success, it's it's probably held me back a bit because I, I, I insisted on being me. I mean, I, I was in the running for Paramount City to host that show. Uh, and that that happened off the back of that late show item for the benefit of people who may not know what that is it was a, a show that the bbc did that was sub, i guess supposedly uh, a kind of answer to friday night live or saturday live yeah. channel four and the first series was hosted by arthur smith and then subsequently um curtis and ishmael that's right yeah i was in the line for it yes and then you know they were all over me uh, you know the late show oh yeah blah, we think you're really good blah. That was my first lesson <laughs> in in filtering out that kind of stuff that uh, television p- people tend to give you. But yeah, you know, I, they never phoned back. I, I mean, I was I was passed over an awful lot for media work. And when it came to agents and managers, I mean, I had terrible luck. Uh, I mean, the agents that signed me up would go out of business, and you know within three months of signing me up so yeah I suffered in that way really I mean there were people who thought I was absolutely brilliant you know <laughs> but that, that's what happens can I take us back a bit because you, you you have a very interesting origin story in in comedy because you, you mentioned earlier you set what the people who set up Cabaret Gogo in Newcastle yeah. and of course what's interesting about that is that in the in the late 1980s stand-up or alternative comedy as it was then was was still largely a metropolitan it was certainly London dominated as a scene I just wondered you know you worked in, in Cabaret Gogo in Newcastle 
Yeah. And then you worked in London. So what were the kind of differences between those scenes artistically? The differences between the two were that we were still putting poets, jugglers and oddball acts on like people like Anvil Springsteen, who did the human anvil. And by the time I arrived in London, many of those oddball acts, the jugglers, the magicians, there are only two magicians as far as I remember, they were being squeezed off the circuit. And I think really it was because of the, many of the new venues were taking place in rooms that didn't have enough ceiling clearance. So uh, that was one thing, but also there was this kind of shift in tastes, I think, towards something that was stand-up rather than variety. But also the audiences, I think. I think the audiences in, in, in Newcastle and Tyne and Weir more generally still needed to be educated in terms of what um, this new type of comedy actually was, that it wasn't, you know, reliant on the joke form you know, if you will, you know, that rule of three. <laughs> and it wasn't just kind of, you know, if you go to the, the working men's club uh, comedy, the comedians, the stand-ups who came through that was very much about the joke as a kind of object that's shared between everybody. It's just, and it's not about the self really, it's about these three fellas or this Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman, or this Irishman, or this mother-in-law or whatever. Yeah. Like packaged jokes, you know, canned yes. jokes. And, and what you were doing in Cabaret Gogo was not that at all, right? Not at all, no. I mean, when I first started doing comedy, I re really didn't know how to go about writing material. There was nobody to teach me. There were no older comedians or seasoned comedians to take me under their wing. So I, I, yeah, I had to rely entirely on my talents, which were quite diverse, really, uh, the ability to mimic voices, for example, but also observations about insects. And because I used to have this thing about flies and wasps as well. And then I developed something about, and, and this, this happened after I, I saw Roy Smiles at the Earth Exchange. He was doing a play with and playing all the characters. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. I think I'll do something like that. <laughs> It was hard. I mean, I actually remember sitting down and trying to write material and staring for ages at this blank sheet of paper. And I thought, well, I can't do that. So I used to keep a notebook instead and um, and just write down ideas. And then I, I, I looked over, I think it was Ivor Dembina's shoulder once, and I saw what how his set list looked. And I thought, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. <laughs> just the keywords, you know, rather than because this is something that Paul Anvil Springsteen used to do. It was he actually used to write down every single word. And when he, when he found out that I didn't do that, he just couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, no, you know, that's not how it works, you know. Well, it's interesting, actually. I mean, Anvil Springsteen, who started, as you say, as a street act um, and have paving slabs broken over his body and that kind of thing to, you know. Uh, but then he became a very good political sort of garrulous stand-up. Yeah. And what's interesting about his method of writing, because I'm pretty sure I used to have a copy of one of his sets that he sent me, like a not a video, but the actual text. Mm. And what's incredible, because it sounded so natural natural and sort of conversational when he performed it. So it's yeah. really interesting that it was written 
word for word kind of thing. Uh, but I, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was you. I know that you um, worked for Cassidy Variety for for a while. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I understand it, they they were you know consciously trying to promote diversity within the scene. Mm-hmm. How successful do you think they were? That's that's a really hard question to answer. I think. I don't think they were entirely successful. I think they were successful within the cast system, as it were. <laughs> so, so just to explain, Cassidy Variety was a little circuit within the circuit, and so yeah. what they, what I, I guess, what you're saying is that what they booked would be quite diverse. But whether that had yeah. a, a broader impact on the rest of the circuit is maybe not so much. Probably not so much. I think uh, they had success with the Two Nine One Club, of course, and that brought many black comedians to the public's attention. Although, you know, a lot of those black comedians didn't play the main circuit. They would have played, you know, the cast new variety circuit, the Hackney Empire. I mean, I, because I, I played the black circuit uh, and, and that came with its own problems too. <laughs> but a lot of those performers that I, I used to appear on the same bill with would say, they'd, they'd refer to it as the white circuit. The main circuit. I actually talk about this in my book, incidentally. Well, we should we but, should plug we should plug your book. You've got a book coming out next year, I think. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I have to go through the the process of. Um, well, I'm rewriting the conclusion, and there are a couple of uh, revisions that I need to make, but it, it's nothing terribly major. I, I wanted to just briefly uh, double click on something you said that when you played the black circuit. It, that it had its own problems. What were the challenges of doing that? Well, that I wouldn't be seen as being properly black, because this is this this has always been a problem amongst other black people. They will some some will see you as the embodiment of a kind of sexual treason, if you will. That you know, my black father married my white mum, and and that was just. Nah. I mean, they could be just as opposed to mixed relationships as white supremacists, I think. I was always conscious, and this is something that Simon Clayton talks about as well, that um, he had anxieties, and like I did, uh, of playing black comedy clubs. Most of the time it was fine, actually, and but I didn't do, you know, stuff, material about saltfish and ackies, and, um, because in those days it was mostly West Indian. I mean, I knew about reggae and dub reggae in particular, <laughs> but I didn't really talk about it. You know, maybe I should have. But I mean, again, then the point is that, you know, your heritage, you know, was perhaps assumed to be other than it actually was. Yes. In other words, that you, your background wasn't West Indian. So it's hard for you then to talk about that culture or, or for the reasons, you know, what is the reason for you doing that anyway? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I people have looked at me and decided well, made up in their heads that I'm uh, from the Indian subcontinent. I've, I've had that before. I've been described as Arab. And this is something that people of mixed, par- uh, mixed I almost said mixed parentage, but that's something I don't like saying, but mixed mm. heritage people yeah. tend to encounter an awful lot. You know, yeah. It, yeah. we're subject to the gaze, you know, this. So it's a similar gaze to the the male gaze. I've got one more question before I think Sophie's going to pick things up, but okay. um, so, so obviously you started as I did, we started at a very similar time, actually. I mean, mm. I first started really in about 1986 um, when it was still very much the alternative comedy or even alternative cabaret circuit. 
yeah. and you you'd hear the phrase non-sexist non-racist a lot like it was yeah. a really widespread assumption but what you've also described is uh, and i think a brilliant ideal as well but i think you, what you've also described is that it wasn't exactly always 100% successful in the sense that you have perhaps had expectations placed on you by audiences other comedians possibly promoters how would you account for the space between the ideal and the reality the ideal was great and this this is something that um something that uh, angela davis once said was that uh, it's not enough to be non-racist you have to be anti-racist so you could extend that to sexism too so it just wasn't enough this is something that i've been writing about as well is that it's um you know for, for many people this was this this was a, a pose you couldn't get away with performing racist and sexist material but that didn't mean that you know you yourself weren't necessarily racist or sexist it was and, and you know I, i've heard some shocking things about the way women were treated on the circuit, with one promoter paying women less than, than male uh, performers, but also audience members shouting, you know, get them off for the lads, that sort of thing. So, you know, these things weren't vanquished. They may have said that they were, you know, they were non-racist and non-sexist, but... I remember being in a, in a taxi or a car in Birmingham with a bunch of people. We just played a you know, a really good club in Birmingham. Um, but uh, Simon Clayton was in the car. He was half of, what's it, what, were they, what was that? The Crisis Twins. Crisis Twins. twins. Yeah. The Crisis Twins. And somebody who wasn't actually to do with the running of the comedy club, but but had sort of tagged along with those who had, mm. was, just, was just talking about something and came out with a slur, realised what they'd said, and then kind of corrected. But it was an awkward moment. It was a horrible moment. And I think as well, my perception was that actually a lot of the 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 the, um, um, the things that 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 prevented it being a space that that lived up to the ideal came from the audience itself. Yes, you know that that, that the performers might have been wanting to do you know uh, to avoid sexism, but that doesn't mean to say that you're going to always attract a non-sexist audience. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the, the late night crowd at the comedy store is a very good example of that. But also jonglers could be like that, too, having played open spots there as well. Uh, there was that kind of expectation. Uh, in a way, they weren't dissimilar to your working men's club audiences. I mean, I, I remember seeing Sheila Hyde at a club in London um, mm. in 1989. Um, you know, on a mixed bill. And there was some, I'm going to use a, <laughs> a crude weapon. There was some arseholes in the audience mm. who uh, were, you know, I don't think it destroyed her act or anything. She was still really good, but it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly interesting. And the guy, I think the promoter threw them out because he, and he said they were, he said they were, you know, proper Nazis, you know, mm. But it was really weird because ever, there wasn't anything else in the club that would suggest that. You know, it was a kind of it was interesting. Those people had chosen to come to that night in the first place in a way. Yeah, I think some pr promoters were more proactive than others in dealing with uh, racists in, in, in their midst, you know, up the creek. I mean, I, I had to deal with some pretty shocking audiences there. Some of them were just, you know, absolutely racist being where it was. You know, they attracted 
audiences in from places like Welling and uh, where, where the BNP had its headquarters and um, Eltham, um, notorious uh, BNP country. So if the, you guys are talking about predates my experience of comedy, right? I'm a very small child, I think, at the time that you're talking about. So the way I've heard about all of those kind of gigs is through the stories people tell about them. Mm -hmm. And what I hear about is this really gloriously dynamic, democratic environment where punters and comedians are all kind of pitching in in a duel of skill and the right will win. And then, of course, we look at that again and there's people having to put up with racist slurs. There's women having to put up with sexual harassment. So for someone like myself, not there, but hearing about it in stories, is there an alternative story that needs to be told about those places? Yeah, I think there is, really. I think it's it's part of the secret history of the uh, the circuit and the movement more generally. I, th I think it's also worth saying it, it depends on which venues, really. You know, I think that's probably true, actually. I think a lot of the North London venues, places like downstairs at the King's Head, uh, the Red Rose Club, Earth Exchange, I mean, they attracted pretty, I don't know, how would you describe them? sort of left-leaning, middle-class people who wanted to be seen to be doing the right thing. Well, Whereas, like I say, you know, the comedy store uh, up the creek, there were one or two other places too that attracted some pretty rough people. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I got, I got it in Newcastle too, really. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, An Anvil Springsteen, recounts a story because we did this gig this benefit gig at, I think it was the ambulance for ambulance workers it could have been Wall's End maybe um and yeah somebody came out with with you know who let the darkie in here you know I actually heard this guy too but Paul reminded me of it you know because I'd almost forgotten about it but these are people who probably went to local working men's clubs. In fact, I think the gig was actually in a, one of these really small working men's clubs in, in Wall's End. I suppose one of the things that's worth bearing in mind is, you know, you can, you can have your ideals for what you want your, your venue and your scene to be, but just because, you, because, because that's what you aim to do, the, the, the problem that exists in the world of, for example, racism doesn't magically go away. No. It's, it's, it's presumably a journey to get mm. to a point where you can sort of get, you know, to it being a bit fairer and more diverse and, you know, yes. celebratory of difference and so on. Yeah. That's kind of what I expected when I joined the alternative cabaret scene, that diversity would be celebrated. And, and to, to some extent it was, you know, but it wasn't perfect. I don't think, you know, we should uh, romanticize uh, the circuit any more than it's right and proper to romanticize the British Empire, which many people do. What about all the good things that the Empire did? <laughs> <laughs> I'd noticed in um, your article, Postpunk called Alternative Cabaret, you, you kind of are talking a lot about what strikes me as being kind of like going against the kind of grain of what's already happening so and, and sometimes being out on a limb a bit doing it so um you talk about uh, wanting to be a subversive artist in an environment that was not primarily set up to accommodate subversive subversive artists by mm -hmm. the end of the 90s you're talking about 
wanting to be a political artist, but feeling that other political artists have gone off to do something else. And also lapping black comedian role models who are uh, kind of dealing with their race on stage in a way that you find appropriate or comfortable, appropriate might not be the word, but that you would you would want to do. So is that is that something that has also kind of shaped your career and your work, kind of um, that, that relationship to the pre-existing, to expectation and to the mainstream? Oh, yeah. Yes, it has, I, I think. I mean, I grew up listening to people like uh, Dick Gregory, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin in particular was a major influence on me. And there weren't, you know, uh, there weren't any black comedians like Dick Gregory or Richard Pryor in this country. We had Lenny Henry, and I didn't see him as a role model. I didn't see Charlie Williams as a role model. He, he played the game. Uh, listening back to some of his jokes, you know, this colored chap, you know, it's like, oh, come on, man. Again, for the benefit of the people who, who may not know, Charlie Williams was a very successful uh, mm. comedian who rose from the working men's club circuit in the 1970s. And I mean, when he was when he was working uh, at the beginning of his career and, and some way into it, he would sometimes literally be playing clubs he wouldn't be allowed into as a member mm -hmm. because of his race. Um, and so therefore, yeah, playing the game is a good description, I think. Yeah. And people forget that many working men's clubs operated a color bar. So did many pubs, too, in the 1950s, 60s and right up until the 1970s. Well, I think there was even a case in the 1980s of a working men's club being found to operate a color bar. Um, mm. You know, so, yeah, you're breaking the law or whatever. But um, yeah, you know, gendered and racial you know racialized it's i mean i always believed that i had a duty to use my art to talk about social and political injustices perhaps that's something that i got from the american comedians that i used to listen to perhaps it also comes from the course that i did at newcastle polytechnic which was geared towards community arts practice so theater and education, political theater, although by that stage, of course, political fringe theater had been squeezed off the cultural landscape by the Thatcher regime's art cuts. Um, and, you know, that also served an educational purpose too, that is rarely talked about because it was, you know, the efforts of cast and 784, Red Ladder, Broadside, who used to go out and educate working class audiences, you know, with regards to how the system works, how they're being oppressed by how bosses are trying to screw them. You know, we don't have that anymore. Are we kind of always aware of that higher purpose as being contrary to playing the game, by which I assume you mean doing the things you need in order to get on in, in the career, in the kind of normative yeah. level of success? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 couldn't have, I couldn't live with myself if I played the game. You know, I know many, many people did and, and you know, their careers uh, benefited from that. Um, but I... I to simply refuse. And it was something that reading about Paul Robeson made me deeply aware of because he refused to 
play up to those expectations of what a black performer should be you know right, right. thinking about the other side of this on a sort of that yeah you're able to talk about lots of people who you knew were not doing it like you wanted to do it um but when you were very well at any point actually when you were first starting out when you were first thinking about performing or later on were there people who you were looking at going oh yeah they, they've I've got this right, but like these people are inspirations to me. Many of the people that I saw when I started out were people like, I mean, I, I really liked Alexi Sale because he was Scouse mainly, but also because he had that really, you know, that that sort of Rottweiler delivery. <laughs> he just didn't, didn't, you know, that was like, it, that's, that's kind of like me because that's, that's Scouse, you know. Scousers don't take shit. Neither do people from Brooklyn. That's where my dad was from. <laughs> so I, I, I have that in double measure. But yeah, it was people like him. But also, I mean, I really liked um, Martin Sutton because he was just so off the wall. And I really, really dug that kind of, kind of material. But also when I saw Felix Dexter for the first time, that was like a revelation to me. I'd never seen a black comedian on the circuit. And I used to go to the clubs in London. Uh, so my girlfriend and I would look through Time Out and go, let's go and see that. You know, or if we'd seen Two Fingers Cabaret listed, that was Martin Sohn incident, we'd go and see him. Or we're always looking for him, uh, or either him or Felix Dexter. I thought Eddie Izzard was pretty good too. Mark Steele, Mark Thomas. But they do politics, too. So that's probably why I was really, really interested in what they were doing. It's a slightly changing tack here, but um, throughout your career, this may have been different at different times. Are there challenges to balancing a comedy career with a home life? I don't think I had it that much when I was starting out because I was a student for a start and then I moved down to London and I was sharing flats or houses with people so you know and they were coming and going at all hours my family doesn't live with me uh, my family lives in Orkney <laughs> uh, but in those days I, I didn't really have any contact with my daughter I didn't even know where she was living until probably 1997 or 1996 maybe and then I got in touch with her and she was living in Ireland then so you know we're we're in touch now but no I, ne I never found it much of a problem really. And how about with other work life because you mentioned sort of taking the day job. Yeah that was difficult because when I first moved down to London uh, I more or less worked full-time I mean I was doing two three sometimes four gigs a night uh, and using public transport to get around. When I started doing a day job, this would have been, what, 1990, but five, maybe. Yeah, it was very difficult to try and hold down the two. I was just, I wasn't getting enough sleep. You know, I was sleeping maybe three hours a night and then getting up and dealing with stroppy tenants who, you know, were complaining about damp when it was, in fact, condensation. Yeah, it was, it was tough. It really was. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on to the, the the final stretch of the of the interview. I know that you're not, you know, you're not sort of slap bang in the middle of the comedy circuit now. But how how diverse do you think it is, and how do you think that's changed since 1979 when the alternative comedy thing kicked off? Well, I think 
it has become more diverse over the years. There, there are more Black and Asian comedians. When I started out, there were no Asian comedians. Jeff Mirza came along in, what was it, 1993, 94, maybe? And neurodiverse uh, performers, too, were fairly absent. Now, you've got loads of them. You've got, you know, comedians like Don Biswas, for example who talks a lot about his uh, dyslexia and dyspraxia, I think. Uh, you know, that makes a refreshing change. We also have uh, comedians that like, like Francesca Martinez, for example. So yeah, things have changed. They have moved on. Now, whether or not many of these performers are will get greater exposure in the media, well, that, I, I think there's still a problem there in, in terms, of, especially with with regards to black comedians. I think Channel 4 has made some kind of effort there because you've got Mo Gilligan, but the BBC is lagging behind. And yeah, there are more women uh, on the circuit too, more female comedians. Back in the old days, back in the old days, there, you know, there, there were some prominent women out there, but there weren't as many as there are now. What do you think needs to change for the comedy industry to become more diverse? I, I think, uh, prom- mm, is it down to promoters? Maybe it's promoters. Maybe it's commissioning editors need to change because the post-colonial period has cast a long shadow over our cultural landscape. You know, we, we have people walking around moaning about the woke. There's been a backlash is what I'm going to say, because I've seen tweets from, I don't know if I should mention, I'll go on, Paul Embury, who's always complaining about diversity on television. And it, 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 he's, he's saying that there aren't enough white people on television. Well, actually, he's not looking at television properly. He's just, he just hates the idea that there's a black or a brown face on television now, when in fact, you know, 30 years ago, there wasn't. Um, you know, a few more black and brown faces, but yeah, it's, so yeah, I mean, I think commissioning editors need to understand and, and spend less time ghettoizing people too. I think those boundaries need to be dissolved because there's still a, this, this kind of ghettoization taking place. Um, Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Well, ghettoization. Well, you know, you have specifically black programs. So like, like Mo Gilligan, who I just mentioned there. I mean, it's a mostly black show, I think. And there was that other show that he did, The Big Nasty Show. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, for all intents, is fairly black, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I mean, think Mo Gilligan's a really interesting example because he's, mm. he's uh, somebody who has become successful despite coming through the black circuit because so yes. many brilliant people that he's recognised in his brilliant programme, uh, Black, British and Funny, yeah. you know, that he's standing on the shoulder of giants in a way. I mean, I think he's the way that he's handled that and tried to kind of use his own success to, you know, to, to sort of direct people's attention further to, to, to other comedians who are, you know, equally good or, or whatever. Uh, but but yeah, I that, agree that, that that whole thing is marketed in a way as if it's of special black interest, whereas actually you know, anybody could watch that. Well, a- absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't think audiences think along the lines of, you know, the commissioning editors and the producers who seem to me to have come mostly from the same class, social 
background. You know, they've all gone to the same schools. They've gone to Oxbridge. You know, they they go to the same social occasions. That needs to change. I think there needs there needs to be diversity among producers and commissioning editors. If I can ask you one more question, picking up yeah. on um, what you just said. So that um, that same argument you just kind of cited about, well, now there's too many people of colour on the telly and not enough white people. Same gets said about women as well. Now there's all these women, uh, where are all the men? So that kind of that kind of line of argument that occurs in lots of different ways that somehow um, there's been a diversity drive and it's undermining meritocracy or denying the place to the person who should rightfully be there. How would you respond to that? I'd say, I'd say grow up. <laughs> that's, what, <laughs> that, that's what I'd say. You know, it really, you know, I, I think you need to, first of all, get your eyes tested <laughs> and you need to grow up because, you know, your, your perception is entirely skewed by your, 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 your prejudices, I think. I think that's what it is. You know, these people, people who are still attached to a world that existed in the imagination, and it, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. So they need to get on board. <laughs> I can use a, that sounded almost like Bill Hicks there. It's a ride. <laughs> <laughs> So what was your takeaway from that, Sophie? God, I was so struck by um, just the the experience he's had of being asked to perform an identity that is not his own, having to come up against people's assumption about who he is based on how he looks, spurious assumptions about who he is. Based yeah, on how yeah. He looks. Also, people just sort of, you know, mistaking him for somebody from the Middle East or <laughs> from the Indian subcontinent. It's like the depths of ignorance behind racism never cease to amaze me. Yeah, exactly. And as we kind of um, talk about at the end there, um, people do sometimes say, you know, actually, this is all a meritocracy. Everyone's got equal opportunity to succeed. It's about whether or not you're a good comedian. And I imagine that's much easier to say if your identity has never made you conspicuous or misinterpreted. In other words, if you're like me from the worst demographic <laughs> of white, straight white middle class men, definitely the worst. I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you there, Ollie. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I don't want you to. I mean, you know. Um, no, I mean, it's interesting. I think, I think part of the problem with, with a lot of those debates is people... People don't people don't have the leap of imagination to think what experience might be from somebody else's point of view as opposed to their own. So they think, well, I haven't experienced that. So how could they have experienced it? Well, because they're a different person, you know. Yeah. That's how humans work. That's yeah. the nature of individual difference, and also it's the nature of kind of differences between different groups in society. Yeah, it is amazing um, that people think that something doesn't exist because it hasn't happened to them. What was your takeaway from the episode, Ollie? Well, I think I think for me it was, um, you know, broadly speaking, alternative comedy was very different from what came before it. You know, if you go back to the working men's club scene of the 1970s, the level of racism was off the chart. Uh, literally, Charlie Williams, who Ray mentions in the interview was 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 not wouldn't have been able to go into some of the clubs he performed in as a member because they wouldn't have accepted him because of the color of his skin right compared with that the alternative comedy scene like way better you know an express 
mission to be non-sexist, non-racist. But of course, nothing's simple. Everything's more complicated than that. And it's a sort of sobering reminder hearing Ray's experiences of being stereotyped and um, in some cases on the receiving end of slurs and things that just because you say a thing, this is non-sexist, non-racist, doesn't mean to say that all of those problems in society just magically disappear. Yeah, And it goes back to that idea we've discussed before, doesn't it, about actually the way we tell stories about these times, about the past, about the present is really important. We need to tell those stories carefully and with nuance. Yeah, I think every um, every myth, every popular myth about alternative comedy in the 80s, however basically true it is, there's another side to it. Thanks for listening to the Stand Up Diversity Podcast. Produced at the University of Kent with support from the Participatory and Co-Produced Research Fund. Hosted by Oliver Double and Sophie Quark. Editing and music by Anki Dams. So you're telling me, a like and subscribe? It's a thing. For the Stand Up Diversity Podcast.